Hi, I'm George Tekmichev, and my special guest today is Toma Aubert, the man behind the scenes at World Archery, helping run events. Toma, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, George, for having me there. This Pleasure. portion of the Easton podcast brought to you by Nespresso. Without Nespresso, we wouldn't be talking today. So. <laughs> Couldn't agree more on that statement. Yeah. So there's been, um, you know, normally the World Archery Office is a quiet place this time of year between Christmas yep. and New Year's. Um, traditionally, uh, just like most of Europe, the office shuts down, but not you. No, no. You are running what is currently the world's largest single archery event. What has it been like? Well, as you said, the well, the World Archery Office is still quiet because we're all working from home, but it, it's, it hasn't been a, such a quiet period for us. Uh, it's it's a long number of hours and and time dedicated to that and and indeed it's it's a big event it's a lot of athletes and and the hardest part to manage as well is having people that are not necessarily directly in touch with us uh, on a normal basis uh, and yeah managing everyone's uh, queries or questions or even results is, is something that was challenging over the past month and a half because it's started since mid-November more or less. Yeah, why don't we back up and talk about the scope of the event, the Indoor World Series, which normally would have been a set of live events uh, around the world. Um, of course, all of those plans had to be restructured and reimagined with the current travel situation and the pandemic that continues. And so give us an outline if you will, of exactly where we stand, how it started, and where we stand right now. Yeah, so normally the Indoor World Series is an, an open series of events, uh, unless our, um, the, the opposite of our, our World Cup. Um, it's basically made on events that are already existing or events that are organized specifically for this. And Yes, events such all... as Nîmes and Vegas are... are uh, big events but there's also smaller ones like the one that took place in rome last year and uh and some other locations exactly and and the goal for it is is to create mass participation around archery because indoor is the most accessible event i would say worldwide because 18 meters it's a short distance so even beginners can join and so it's a collection of those events with the highlight being the final in Vegas on Saturday night in front of 5,000 spectators. Um, so that's normally how it runs and, and how it looks like in a general way. It's events between 200 people and 5,000 people, 4,000 something people um, running from end of October to mid-February. Uh, given the numbers I just, I just mentioned, it was realistically not possible to have that kind of event uh, this year. And we learned very fast in the year and very early in the year that some of our smaller events were already dropping the event because they, they was forcing not being able to organize it because of funding issues or, or just the situation going bad, which was the case of Macau, uh, of Strassen, Rome, uh, so we had at some point to sit down with the organizer that were remaining in the course and the spotlight and find another way of doing it. And 
we sat with Olivier and Bruce at the distance, of course, and, and discussed uh, what were the opportunities that we had, how we could transform it in something positive, because that's also what we strive to do since uh, March, uh, more or less, is trying to give positive news where we, when we can, not just announcing a batch of cancellation one after the other. Um, and we came up with that plan of that having an online series of events on a consistent basis every month and where we could to have it joined with the two events that were remaining on the calendar, meaning MIM and Vegas. So that, that was the original plan of, of that series. And the, um, the fourth stage is going to continue on schedule for February, is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the original plan was to have basically every score shot in Vegas added automatically to our ranking. So people would benefit of that event to score the third or fourth score and make their ranking better. Now that we learned that Vegas was canceled, uh, at least for the physical part of it, the results, there will be still an online where people could shoot at home. Uh, then there might be ongoing discussion in the next couple of weeks, uh, hopefully with Vegas to see what their plans are, are with the flight uh, and, and the youth events. If we could find a way to merge results with the one they will collect or adding these two as well in our ranking. Uh, but as it is, it will stand because also all our events are merged with whether an invitational or local tournament in Switzerland for which we organize a small broadcast to also stay alive in the audiovisual world and, and have something that we could uh, send and, uh, and use for TV, TV purposes. Yeah, well, you've already, you've already done that for the um, Lausanne Invitational. Uh, and those matches, those final matches are available online for viewing right now. Yes, yes, and, and they were, we did that at the two first events we did this year. One was in uh, another part of Switzerland, a bit further from Lausanne because Lausanne was not possible. But yeah, it's, and we saw by the result of people viewing it and by channels around the world taking it, uh, that it was something that was needed and people wanted to follow archery, to see archery and to interact with archery in general. So we are happy that at least for that part, we're fulfilling some kind of purpose. Well, at this time, the NFAA and Bruce and the NFAA Foundation still are formulating their plans. So perhaps it's a bit early to talk about how uh, what Vegas is doing will be fitting in with uh, WA's plans. But uh, suffice it to say that there's an effort to try to have some some cooperation there, right, Thomas? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, and we also have uh, a world championship outdoor coming uh, after that uh, at Yankton Center as well. So we try to help the NFA the best possible way and try to have the best support we can uh, to our organizers, and and hopefully we can help them having a great event for the championship divisions. I cannot imagine how many terabytes of data that you have to manage with everybody involved in this 5,000 plus participant world indoor series uh, that is um, dependent on people getting their scorecards in and pictures of their targets. Can you give us some insight as to what kind of infrastructure you had to implement to make that work? Uh, I, I 
can give you some details, not all of them, because I'm not too much of an IT person. So that's okay. Uh, just just the broad uh, strokes, you know. Yeah. No. So as we were mentioning, it's not counting in terabytes; it's gigabytes because we're limiting the submission uh, to five mega per uh, per file. Oh, but that was still around. Yeah, that's but still around 30, 30 gigabytes uh, from the last one. And to give you an insight as well on, on, on numbers, uh, basically it represents around 30 to 50,000 pictures that we have to look at in two days after the event. Oh, good Lord. How many people do you have working on it? Um, so we have evolved between the first and the second one. Uh, the first one, we were basically three uh, doing that. Uh, and four more that were helping us in checking the scores. Now to run the whole weekend, uh, we have seven people doing it. Uh, and we also had the good idea at some point to involve people in different time zones. So we could actually have a sleep at some point. Yeah. Um, but now we, we have eight people that are helping us with the check, scorecard checking as well, uh, which, is, which is already a lot of people giving their time because most of them are, are volunteering for that. Uh, even if they're part of our programs in development or, or any other kind of staff we have that was supposed to be on holidays and, and took on their holidays nicely to, to help us reviewing all those, uh, those call cards. And every one of those cards is getting reviewed individually, aren't they? Yes, uh, we have different we we have different filters. So we have first a filter that uh, kicks out basically the one that didn't submit any score in the app, which are considered that did not start, uh, and that happens. That that on the last one on five thousand registration, we have about one thousand people that didn't shoot, uh, maybe because the situation has changed because the, the hole was not available anymore or they didn't have a venue. Yeah. We don't know exactly why, but still this party is considered as DNF, a DNS. And then we have another part where the second major filter we have is that people that are not submitting any evidence of their score and that happens too. So that's help us lowering a bit the number of scorecards we control, but yes, we control, uh, we control all of them. It seems to me that um, some of the scores have been um, really excellent from the usual suspects, shall we say. Uh, you know, for example, Brady Ellison turning in a score just two points shy of perfect. And uh, Brady and I spoke in our last podcast, and he had shot something on the order of seven consecutive 300s before he shot for score, and yet did not clean. <laughs> you know, he shot a 299, 299, if I'm not mistaken. And um, Dave Cousins with a perfect score um, of 600 points. The integrity of the scores is a part of what gives this event its credibility. And all of the archers that I know that have been involved in this thing have been taking it very seriously. And uh, I think one big reason is that there's a cash prize involved here, isn't there? Exactly. The, the, the prize money is only in team and team members have to shoot at a World Archery Calendar registered event. So we know that their score is validated by a judge on an official competition. It's not something that is shot at home because we also are aware that even if 90, probably 95% of, of the people doing that event is taking it seriously, we'll always have some that will try funny things, let's say, um, and we cannot have 100% control on that. We do as much as we can uh, to keep it fair, to keep uh, 
I will say it, cheat, cheaters out of it as much as we can, but there's no uh, way to do it 100% uh, cheat proof. Sure. So I mean, you know, people are people, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be as good as it can get. And, you know, a top archer, a Dave Cousins or a Brady Ellison, it is absolutely not in their personal interest to no. turn in a score that's not uh, 100% legitimate. Those guys have the spotlight on them all the time. People would find out pretty quickly if there was some shenanigans going around. But, you know, uh, you're going to have you're going to have that once in a while. Yeah. Uh, I think, though, that, um, you know, for the most part, what we're seeing is very clear evidence that people are super eager to get back into competition and to participate in our sport. And that, I think, is a, is a hopeful thing in spite of the fact that, you know, we're, we're not exactly in the best place right now in terms of the pandemic. No, uh, hopefully it's, it's going to get better with the vaccine starting a bit everywhere in Europe uh, and, and in other parts of the world. I, I hope it will have, help something. Um, but yeah, we, we see that people are really eager to, to compete again, to practice for something, I would say, for most of them, uh, because practicing for just practicing when you're competitive athletes, I think at some point it also gets boring and complicated to stay focused. So yeah, getting back to actual competition, I think is is something that we saw people are eager to go back to. With the next stages coming up, um, 15 through 17 of January, and then February, and then the final for the teams only in late February, mm-hmm. there must be some lessons learned from stage one in November and stage two earlier this month in December that could be applied to people continuing to participate. I've heard yeah. stories that some people had accidentally used targets that were not official and the, those couldn't be accepted. So that's kind of obvious that you've got to use an official target, right? Yes, uh, there's a lot of learnings, I think, for, for athletes participating, for member association also being linked to those events because we saw that a lot of local events are developing also because of, of that event. And there's also a lot of things to learn, I think, from our side. And in the way we communicate information, in the way our processes are working for mass events, uh, where sometimes what we want to transmit is not understood the same way as we wrote it. Uh, And it has given us a lot of feedback on on how individuals are reacting to the information we give them, uh, also to improve our, our systems and we have between the first and the second stage, and we will also be between the second and third stage. And we also notice indeed that, that people are not, uh, not necessarily using target faces or using target faces that are not, uh, I would say under license since more than four years, but apparently somehow the information didn't get through them. So trying to figure out where that came from, if it was, old batch of targets that were purchased at that time and not used by then, or you don't know what. It's, 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 uh, it's a lot of learnings, I would say. Maybe sure. too much at once, but it's a lot of data to process and, and information to, to implement for, for, to make our processes better. So for the next stage, what advice would you have for people participating? One, use a current licensee target, right? Yes, absolutely. That, that would be the, the major disqualifier on the first stage. Uh, it got better on the second. So 
gets a target face that is under license where the license is clearly visible. And then the second one is uh, be careful on the, the targets you're using and, and the impacts on the target because we're checking the impacts on the targets. That's how we catch inconsistencies. There the hold in the target with the scorecard. And we expressively ask athletes to start on a fresh the, the, the round on a fresh target. So do not shoot your practice target arrows on the same target because then you will have too many impacts and then the score won't match. So that would be the second important advice is like, be sure you shoot your round on a fresh target every time you're shooting. Uh, because otherwise for us, it makes us impossible to determine which are the warm-up arrows and which are not. Uh, and then the final advice I would, I would have for them is that is there is no need to submit 20 pictures, one picture per end to prove every single arrows, but having a clear picture of the scorecard with the signature and each target face that was used during the round, even if it's two, three, four target faces that you use, just a picture, clear picture of each one of them showing the whole target, and that will be enough. But yeah, it's that would be the three biggest advices that we have to make a sh to make sure that your score is is validated. Gotcha, and that'll be very helpful in terms of avoiding some of the kinds of things that uh, that we've heard about. You know, where people had submitted uh, scores, for example, with extra holes in the target, and that caused issues with uh, being able to ratify those scores, things of that nature. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, moving on to the upcoming season. Um, we have, besides the virtual events going on, we, we still have the hope, at least at this time as we speak, for the live events starting hopefully in April or so with the mm -hmm. start of the World Cup. Can you give us some insight right now? I, I know how difficult it is not knowing what travel restrictions and other things are going to be in place by the springtime. But let's be hopeful and say that for now, things are going to go as, as planned. Uh, what is the chance that we'll see the World Cup starting in Guatemala City in April, uh, as you see it right now, Tama? Tama? So uh, I would have a hard time putting a number on that in terms of chances of it happening, because I was pretty sure that the event last, the events last year will still go on. Um, yeah. So were we all, <laughs> so I sympathize and I understand. I'm sure all our listeners also understand, but, you know, speculating as much as we can, um, if, if everything were to improve, um, the, the first event is set for Guatemala city, yeah. uh, toward the end of April, followed yes. by Shanghai, which has been a traditional stop for the world cup for the last, uh, 15 years, and then we've got the most important thing, I think, though, really, is going to be Paris in June, because that is the last chance for a lot of countries to seed slots for the Olympic Games taking place in Tokyo. Yeah, uh, so uh, to, be, to be completely honest with you, uh, I think that for any of those events, it could go either way. Uh, I, I would say 50-50 for all those events, because we see currently that restrictions are very different from a country to another, uh, where to go for to go to France, for instance, uh, and in the upcoming event in Nîmes, uh, a PCR test would be enough or uh, a proof of a vaccine would be enough to participate. 
but mm -hmm. as we know now and we have contact with uh, our friends from university uh, from university games from Fizu that are in Chengdu right now that to enter in China you have to quarantine for 14 days whatever proof you have with you so that would make Shanghai very hard for instance uh, so it's it really depends on how the next couple of months will go uh, for now we're all working with those events uh, as if it was going to happen on a scheduled normal way with some provisions due to the pandemic, but we're working with them in that sense. Uh, Guatemala already has registration open and athletes registering. Uh, we also have some uh, continental events uh, in the Americas that are accepting registration. So we are hopeful that, that something will happen, uh, but we might have some very late news that blocks everything a month ago, a month before the event sure. that we're not sure of. Sure. And of course, we don't know that right now as we speak. Hopefully, when we look back at this podcast in six months, we'll go, ah, well, that worked out okay. But we don't know right now. But Paris in particular, um, you know, the the third week of June, um, actually the final week of June, you know, 22nd to 27th of June. That is so important, not just as a World Cup, but as the FQT for the games. Is there a backup plan in case something uh, disallows Paris from taking place as planned right now? Yeah, there, there are backup plans in whether we're having the event or not, in Paris or not. Uh, and there is also a provision that is uh, set, and that was already mentioned in the last update of the uh, qualifying guide for uh, for for uh, Tokyo. Sorry. Uh, and the worst case scenario, the absolute worst case scenario, where nothing is happening and the event cannot be held, we have a provision with our world ranking with the last events uh, that would be shot. Uh, to, to award those places. So there are contingency me measures that are planned if the event were not to take place. And uh, I think Tom said it on the last podcast uh, that you had you with did. him, is that if, if Paris is not happening, it's probably a, a bad sign for Tokyo as well. So we hope that we don't have to use those contingency and we'll do whatever it takes to have it organized, even if it means not having the World Cup, but just focusing on the FQT for three days in Paris. Uh, but we will have a plan to make sure that everyone that needs to be qualified for the games will be qualified for the games. Yeah, that, uh, that's, that's very reassuring to understand that there is going to be a path, regardless of whether the event takes place as planned right now. Of course, we're hopeful that with the advent of springtime, we'll see some relief in the situation and uh, we'll keep an eye on it and, and continue to talk to you, Tama, as we go forward in order to uh, understand where we're at uh, in the months ahead. But it sounds like, uh, you know, uh, with the experience we've had in the past eight months, that backup plans are the order of the day for any event going forward. Yeah, and that's also as Tom said many times, is that as long as you have a backup plan, you probably won't need it. If you don't have it, you will need it. Yeah, so. that's absolutely, it's Murphy's <laughs> Law, you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, it sounds like um, as things go forward, we'll continue to enjoy the opportunity to follow the ongoing 
World Indoor Series that's taking place right now. Participate in it. People can uh, go to the worldarchery.sport website to get information on, because you can still participate at this time, right? If people uh, sign up, they could they could shoot another stage or two of this, right? Yeah, the, well, the, there are three stages remaining because NIM is acting as a bonus one. So, and registration for the January events are open until the 10th of January. Uh, so yeah, don't hesitate to go on, on our website. You'll find every information uh, you'll need to participate. Uh, FAQs, if you have any question, and we have also a very good support service in place. Um, so yeah, don't hesitate to, to go on the website and, and, and register for the next event in January. And George, I encourage you to pick up your bow and do, do it as well. Well, I, I will do that as soon as I can move my left shoulder. I had a little, <laughs> I had a little injury the other day. Uh, we won't go there. But yeah, uh, I would like to do that. Uh, that would that that is you know here's the thing. The the beauty of this is you don't have to get on a plane. You don't have to get on a train. You can pick up your bow, get together with two other friends, and shoot a score. And and that is a beautiful thing. And and it lets you participate in a world event without having to travel the world. And there's there's a positive to be had there. Yeah. I just hope that it's not the future of the sport, but there's no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> everybody agrees. This is not the future of the sport. We're not going to accept this as the future of the sport. This is a way for us to stay in the sport while we get past what we're dealing with. And I, and I, you know, I, I think that uh, everybody in our sport is very grateful that people like you are taking time off the holiday to, to get this kind of thing done. People like you and the other volunteers at WA who are, going through those results and making that happen. I, I think that everybody owes you thanks for, for getting this done. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and, and honestly, I don't, I don't think we, we deserve those things because we're, we're doing what it takes for the sport to stay alive. And that's, that's, we also do that because we're not only working for that sport, we, we love that sport. And, and yeah, we want it to be, to be still alive while everything else is, is, Kind of close, or if we can bring that that little spark in in people's week by just having a goal at the end of the weekend, shooting at an event, competing, uh, having some scores, having the adrenaline coming, the heartbeat going up. That's that's all what we need, and and that's the best thing we can we can get from those kind of events. Absolutely, and so I, I just want to say thanks, Thomas, and thank you for joining us on the podcast to discuss these things today. We will continue to talk to you going forward in order to, uh, to get the latest developments as we get to the next stages of this event. If you have the, uh, the time to talk to us, appreciate you taking the time now. Thank you. Thank you, George. Anytime. Well, it was great being able to talk with Tomo Aber about the challenges of having 5,000 people in a, uh, in a world archery event that's got to be a record and i look forward to the next uh, stage i've got uh, another guest on the on the line now it is our old friend clint warner better known to you as clintavius <laughs> if you've ever been to the ata show <laughs> how hey, clint. hey george how are you i'm good how that name stuck is beyond me well because it's just a natural you know you got that roman haircut thing going on well, and, and, and i'm gonna just i gotta clear the air on this so a couple of years ago at ATA, um, Steve Anderson was coordinating our badges to get into there and made me a badge that said Clintavius Warner Inski. My name's Clint, but yeah, yeah, I don't well, know. Yeah. Anyway, so I, that, I, that's the rest of the story. 
So well, I, it's it's stuck. It, and it's going to continue to stick now that thousands and thousands of other people now know you as Clintavious <laughs> rather than Clint. Yeah, anyway. So uh, for those of you who don't remember, Clint is the product manager at Easton and the guy behind a whole bunch of stuff going on there today, including all the new stuff that's coming out in uh, this upcoming week, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we last spoke in October, Clint, uh, when Easton had revealed the new product line. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like the demand has just gone through the roof. It's uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been crazy. I mean, even in a really crazy year when a lot of events haven't been going on, um, there's still a lot of excitement for the new stuff. Um, people are really eager to get out and shoot again. And, you know, I think they're, they're shooting quite a bit, even, you know, even with what's going on. So, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true. And I, I know you didn't have a chance to listen while Thomas and I were discussing the ongoing world indoor series, but 5,000 participants in that one event and uh, the number is actually growing. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, you know, you think about uh, when you have these roadblocks that come in, right? I mean, what, what the virus did to us and the whole world, and it kind of forced us to, um, you know, just, I don't know, bootstrap a new way to do things. And, and to, sure. to look at how, you know, target archery is taking this challenge and let it be the springboard of creativity and create a new way of, of a new format of doing tournaments, I think it's pretty cool. And, and to see, you know, it breaks down those barriers to allow more people to participate that maybe couldn't travel or didn't have the means to do some of the things that, you know, other people would, would be able to only do. So I think it's cool, George, in, in some respects, I think there's what, you know, is it going to mean more shooters participate and more, you know, more people get into the sport and, you know, looking forward to a couple of years from now, what, what are the upsides, to, you know, what's the upside to this new way of doing things? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think the thing that's interesting about this is it is indeed the first time that just about anybody, no matter where they are, can participate in a world level event without having to get on an airplane and stay in a hotel and do all the other things that go with that. And while nobody, at least at the moment, is saying this is the best way forward, uh, it does say something about the adaptability of people to circumstances and the yeah. strength of our sport and the strength of people wanting to participate no matter what. And, uh, you know, a people question. are really, you know, doing that. Yeah, a question for you, George, and it's more of just a, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. If there's more participants and if there's more people paying, you know, the, the fee to participate. Which, by the way, for this particular thing, there is no fee. There is no fee. Uh, you know, but, yeah. But hypothetically, right, like if, if there's more people allowed to participate, let's say in Vegas, okay. and they're Which would have a fee, yes. You know, could it have an impact in the purse sizes getting bigger in some of these events and, and maybe making, you know, them more attractive for people to participate? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. Okay, there's there's a couple of things you've got to solve, right? One of them we yeah. talked about with Tomal, which was the integrity of the scores. If you're going to put money on the line, and there is money on the line for the team round in this world archery thing. If you're going to put money on the line, you've got to set this thing up in such a way that there's no question as to the veracity of the scores. And without having a judge available, that really comes down to people's integrity. You know, you're supposed to have a group of uh, three people to yeah. shoot 
each of these scores and you're relying on those three people to have integrity. And without that, you know, it, it does make things, you know, challenging or open to question, right? Unless you videotape from start to finish the entire round with a camera on the target and a camera at the shooter or, you know, some other means, which vastly complicate. I know that doesn't sound very complicated, but it vastly complicates things. Then you're, you're always going to have some question there. But, you know, if there is a good way for us as shooters to take care of that aspect of things, and I, I don't know what it would be, um, then yes, that would definitely do something. Until then, it's a male match, let's face it. You know, it, it is, that's what it is. And you're not going to have the same level of, um, shall we say, uh, objectivity given to this thing that you would get from a world archery event where everybody's standing on the line, you've got judges there, you know, there's no question well, of any, the, you know. I don't know, the, there's that competitive spirit, you know, that would exist, you know, it's, it's gotta be lacking oh, yeah. a little. I mean, you're, you're feeling like you're in practice rather than, you know. Well, practice. here's the thing, you know, if you've got, if you've got the opportunity to set up the proper technical chain to make this work, yeah. And, and this this kind of leads us to the next thing, which is eSports. World Archery's executive um, board met earlier in the month. Um, you know, we talked to Tom Dillon on the podcast about that. One of the things that we didn't get into too deeply, but we are going to be talking about in the new year, is eSports. A lot of Olympic sports are starting to create an e component. That is literally a situation where, you know, you've got online gaming, right? You've got sports where you have online gaming. Well, in bicycling, they've taken that to a level that goes beyond, you know, with the availability of electronic bicycles that are literally hooked up live to the internet. They actually had a world championship and they were able to name an e-sports bicycling champion because you had, you know, real-time uh, telemetry and they were able to create an event a virtual event where they just named a world champion. I have honestly no idea how you would do that logistically with archery, but world archery is working on along with the IOC, a plan to do some sort of archery E event. And I think that, you know, um, for, for kids who are the, the age of, of your son, for example, yeah. that could very well be a, a thing they could find themselves involved in going forward, you know, in the future. And it, you know, it reflects the other changes we're seeing in, in culture, a lot of which have been driven harder by the current circumstances, you know, the, just, you know, the, the, the clunkiness of previous web-based meeting solutions that we all know about from the past, because, I mean, you know, just as an example, Easton has multiple divisions in multiple places. And you used to have meetings with people using other technical solutions that were, quite frankly, pretty clunky. Yeah. And now things are a lot easier and you know, faster to implement with less equipment required. And um, you know, I think that the same drives that we are currently experiencing now are going to have a payoff for us down the road. It'll be interesting, I think, for Easton to look at this thing and, and maybe have its own solutions down the road, potentially, 
as you start looking at, at opportunities from this kind of thing. I think every archery company is going to have to do that sooner or later. Right. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Product stuff um, yeah. is, is in your wheelhouse. And um, just, you know, this week you're starting to ship all the new stuff and it's starting to get out there, uh, including all those new sizes of ProComp, which are going over super uh, big as people are starting to realize that the, the ProComp arrow is the replacement for the ACC and the ACG. And it's now available in all those sizes. You want to recap that for us, the, the size mix for that? Yeah, so that's available from a 250 down to an 1150 spine. Um, so I'm counting. Yeah, that's it's something like, spines, right? I was going to say 14 or 15, yeah. Yeah, it's a full spine, it's a full spine suite, um, really. Um, and really, you know, to capture every every level of shooter. Yeah, and, and the thing about, the, the thing that, that uh, I think is really good about this thing is, of course, the fact that you've got, a smarter, or I should say an easier to live with component uh, descriptor for all this stuff. So it's a lot less ambiguous as to what components go with all these things. Yeah. And that seems to have gone over really well. People seem to get that right away. Yeah. Yeah. So the point we recommend, so the pro comp um, component, you know, family, it takes the four millimeter pin, which is the same, you know, diameter pin you would have put in an ACE um, or a carbon one, but what we've done is we, we just, to make it simpler to understand, we now are going to be calling all of our uh, four millimeter pins, just that we're not going to, yeah. we're not going to refer to the model that they fit. We're going to refer to the diameter because what's happening and um, maybe give a little, I'll give a little background. The way where we came from was a world in which most of our models had a unique ID. So looking back years ago, I mean, the ACC, um, the reason, you know, it is what it is, is you've got, you know, multiple different diameters of tubes to make that arrow and, and they needed dedicated components. Well, the ACC was our flagship AC product for a lot of years. So then when the ACE came out, um, you know, it was small diameter and had its own, its own componentry. Um, when the X10 came out, it was a different diameter, had its own componentry, but then you start introducing things like a carbon one, Apollo, and an ACG, those were all built on the same four millimeter um, platform. But, you know, it, it, we still were calling those components, you know, based on what the arrow they were originally intended to fit. And over time, it just got so confusing because the ACG pin would fit in that as well as the carbon one. And it just was really hard. Oh, to yeah. Yeah. It, so it just it got out of hand. Yeah. Once, once a certain number of products were introduced over time, you know, it made perfect sense when you only had one or two uh, right. models. So now but, our new four millimeter pin um, is going to fit, you know, every four millimeter arrow we make from an ACE to a pro comp to the Avance and the Avance sport um, all will use, you know, that same four millimeter pin. And then we just have um, four different sizes of that pin number one, two, three, four, it's just, and that's all in the chart. You can, um, in the catalog, you can reference to see exactly which four millimeter pin needs to fit. So as for the pro comp there, it's going to use all four, all four pin sizes, depending on the spine. Sure. And that really simplifies things, um, on a number of levels. And of course, yeah. uh, you know, you've got, uh, on the Easton archery website, easternarchery.com, 
you have specific recommendations for specific components for each model and each size within the model. So if there's any question, all you have to do is go to easternarchery.com, look up the particular product, say for example, Avance or Avance Sport, and it'll show you, okay, these are the choices of the specific parts that go into this specific size that you need. And it'll really simplify matters greatly for both dealers and for consumers. So it's a, it's a really good way forward from that point of view. Yeah. There's been, um, you know, getting back to what's going on with archery, there has been a, a real surge of participation, uh, as we talked about in this world archery thing, but also regional events around the world. And the demand, the demand for products seems to be really high as a result. Yeah. No, the, the demand, that's what's crazy. I mean, you know, when, one of the things that's happening is, you know, I, with, with people and stay-at-home orders, more people are shooting archery in one form or another than have in, in many years. You know, be it uh, hunting, you know, bow hunting in the U.S. Is, is off the charts. We probably are having a record year in terms of the number of participants in bow hunting. Yeah. Um, you, know, I, you, know, in, in, you know, obviously the target competition side of things is down with tournaments canceled, but just people shooting bows and arrows, I would say, as a whole is, is up. Some of that's also reflected in targets, isn't it? That is, I mean, you know, archery targets, which, which you know, Easton has a subsidiary that makes archery targets. Can you give us some insight there? Is that is that uh, also showing that kind of yeah, demand? Yeah, we're having, we're having a great year across the board, you know, and I think it's just, it's it's back to when people are, they're home, they, they're not working, they're working from home, they're, you know, kids, um, their sports programs have been canceled you know, they're picking up a bow and they're shooting it, you know, and, and they're, even if they're doing it in their backyard, you know, they're getting outside, um, you know, and they're, they're participating in the sport that way. So, you know, one thing we've noticed, you know, this time of year is normally when we would see a little bit of a, you know, a slowdown, I guess, from the consumer demand side through our dealers, but we haven't experienced that at all. I mean, it's been, we've been, we've been seeing really strong uh, business, you know, all year. So, yeah. So, you know, that, I'm that, just hopeful that continues all through next year and, and, you know, we can get beyond, you know, that 2020 um, you know, disruption we had in the early, early part of the year. Yeah. Which, you know, which affected everybody uh, to a degree, but I would argue less Easton than some other companies involved in archery. Most of the other companies that sell archery gear right now are dependent on, uh, mostly stuff coming from China. And as a result, some of Easton's competitors aren't even shipping products and, and have actually exited. You know, Steve and I were joking about a particular arrow company that has basically exited the target market uh, completely, a well-known company. And, um, you know, when we spoke to Aaron Lucky back in the spring, the, the president of Easton, yeah. uh, he made it clear that it was, it was important to him and important to Greg Easton and everybody who works at Easton that that made in USA aspect of things continue. And boy, that I have to say has paid off in, in maybe even some unexpected ways, having control of your own destiny, not being, not being reliant on outside makers to supply you with stuff. Sure. Yeah. I mean, where, you know, we make a lot of these people, they're buying their arrows from companies that make arrows for other companies, you know, so they're, they don't really have the luxury of being able to prioritize you know, production for them, you know, they're, they're kind of just, 
hope, you know, hoping that they get their shipment when they, when they've been told they're going to get it. And, you know, and I think when supply chain, you know, problems happen and market disruption happens, you know, that it, it's a, a bigger challenge for someone who's importing product exclusively to react than if you have your own factory, you know, here, um, all of our most, everything we make is made right here in Salt Lake city. You know, we use fiber, a lot of carbon fiber that's made in the United States. We use resin that's made in the United States. We have our, our people and our machines here that, um, that we can totally direct to do whatever we want to do. If we, if we're behind on one particular model, we can divert the resources and put it there and, and make more of that. And we can do it on a, you know, on a moment's notice. So it's really nice to be able to have control, um, of, of things and to that, to that level. So that when we start seeing demand, you know, I do the opposite of what maybe we thought was going to happen back in February or March, when things were for a lot of uncertainty was in the air. I don't know how many people would have accurately predicted how strong hunting would have been. I mean, I, I think we, we could have guessed, but hunting was great. And I think we were hearing, you know, sales reps and, and other people and you know, just concern, you know, what was going to happen? I think we were all a little unsettled by it. Well, I don't think anybody knew what was going to happen because nobody knew how people were going to react to things like meat shortages in supermarkets, which had a definite impact on the perception of hunting and people's uh, desire yeah. to kind of control their own destiny in that area, you know, yeah. whether it's rational or not, because, you know, it's still very expensive per pound to go out there and, and harvest your own game. But, but people wanted to feel some control over their, over their local destiny, as it were, I think. Yeah. And I, I honestly think that's one important driver for why bow hunting has had a big surge in areas that allow it. Yeah. And it, and so it was strong, right? It had a really good year. And fortunately, I mean, where Easton's factory is in Salt Lake city, um, we weren't forced to shut down. And that was a blessing to us because we were able to keep producing um, during the spring and, and summer when a lot of other places had shut down. Yes. And um, that was great for us. And it just carried through into the fall when the demand you know, peaked, we were able to deliver on that. So um, yeah, it's just been, it's great. And to be able to make that stuff here again, you know, if you think about the time it takes to, to import stuff from Asia, um, you know, you're looking at six to eight weeks to get stuff on a boat and get it, you know, ship it from Asia to the United States. So we don't have that. Um, a lot of people think, you know, incorrectly that, well, Easton's just, you know, they're buying their carbon from China and they're, they're just putting their label on it. And, and that's not the case. You know, we don't show a lot of things in our factory because we treat them as trade secrets, but we actually are, are producing the actual aero shafts here. We don't just slap a label on stuff. Um, so there's a lot of high tech stuff that goes on um, behind our walls where we're, we're buying, you know, dry carbon fiber, we're adding resin, we're turning it into a, um, you know, a precise size tube that gets processed and then you know, labeling is just the last thing that happens. And so all that's done here in the States. And so when we talk about made in USA, uh, you know, as, as we do, um, we're really proud to say that we are the only made in USA aero company. And we've been that way um, now for almost a hundred years. Our hundred year anniversary will be in 2022. So we're looking forward to that and getting ready. We're for two that. days from the 99th year. <laughs> we are. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting up there. 
but it's, you know, it's, I've been affiliated with the company in one way or another since 1997, when I first started answering phones here. So um, I was answering phones, doing customer service. And so it, you know, I've, I've been around for a while um, and been able to see it evolve. It's kind of neat to see how the factory has been able to evolve. And as the world has moved away from United States manufacturing in favor of lower cost labor in Asia, it's neat to see how Easton has, has adapted and been able to keep their factory going here. Yeah, without having to do that, uh, yeah. you know, follow the cheap labor route. Um, I yeah. think that's important to you know. One thing I, one thing we we look at, we we use robotics all over the place in our factory now, and that's been way cool to see how, you know, we we can you know use a lot of high tech you know innovation to be able to to do things, you know, and, and to keep our costs in line. So it's good. Yeah, well, I, I think it's also interesting to note that I think your headcount is actually higher in spite of the robotics, but you're, you're creating more products uh, as part of that too. So it's not just a matter of throwing robots at a situation. Uh, you're maintaining efficiency uh, by getting more production capability out of the existing equipment that's there with the people you have. And I think that's a, that's a tremendous testament, I think, to the vision of, uh, of Aaron and Greg and others who've worked on these things to get those things implemented um, which you were already in the process of doing before we ever heard of COVID-19. So, you know, that, that, uh, the timing yeah, on things, that was very happen, good. Things tend to happen for a reason, you know, and I, I'm, it's kind of cool to see how, you know, stuff we put in place several years ago has, has really, you know, helped, um, when things got tough in, in other respects. So, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of positioned you to weather this current situation in a way that most other archery companies haven't been able to uh, to enjoy. And it's also something to consider that, you know, this isn't something you can just flip a switch and have it happen. It takes years in some cases to implement some of these things in your production processes. Well, a little bit of inside baseball, um, you know, Gary uh, in the marketing department there has been working on a virtual video tour of Easton, which, uh, which does show quite a bit of stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I know that that's getting close to, really getting close to being released. Um, I'm really excited about that. If, if there's one thing that I hope people get from that, besides, you know, proving to the, we'll, we'll call them digital archers on archery talk that don't want to, <laughs> but proving to those people that we actually make stuff here, that would be, that would be great. Right. I just, I want to just, I want people to know that Easton really is a made in USA company and, and the video illustrates that well. Yeah. But, so that'll be, that'll be coming also, out relatively soon. I think it, it, it if you pay attention to the to the equipment and the machines that are making this stuff as they go through the video, especially on the carbon um, portion of it, it, it shows how we make our arrows um, and specifically the AccuCarbon process. Right. And that that process is so unique to Easton, and no one else in the world does it. Um, not even the the, you know, the companies in Asia making carbon arrows for other companies. The way we make AccuCarbon and the way it, it makes for a, a, a seamless shaft um, is really unique. And that that is something that if the market really understood that, I see no reason why they would even want to buy another type of carbon arrow. If people realized that, that, that the way we make our arrows delivers you a shaft that does not have a seam, therefore has a consistent spine around the shaft, and that the OD and the ID is the same, you don't have to grind 
a shaft we make on the acucarbon process. Well, what that means is you're not grinding the shaft. You're not creating spine variation from shaft to shaft. You end up with a perfect shaft. And if people just understood what that meant, and, and I, I, if they knew that there would be no, there'd be no competition really. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, here's the thing, the, the combination of processes that created the acucarbon thing that took years yeah. to refine and, and to bring into play. And so, you know, in a way it's interesting because I don't think that um, everybody understood what a revolutionary thing that is from the standpoint of quality and the standpoint of consistency. You know, when you can make an arrow that literally would, if you, if you shut off the machine part that cuts it down to size yeah. and just let it run, as you've pointed out in the past, you could have a, approximately a 2.7 mile long arrow. Yeah. All exactly the same, the whole all thing. exactly the same. And that's, that's incredible, you know? And I mean, if you were to, if without that, you have to sort through dozens of arrows to come up with 12 that are equally matched. And even still, they would have a, they would have a seam and, and you'd have some spine problems, you know? So, yeah, yeah. Unless, unless you do it as, as an AC arrow, which eliminates those issues. And that's why right. AC was originally yeah. invented. But, you know, an AC arrow is two arrows in one. The cost is much higher. And so, uh, you know, the AccuCarbon not only gives you the ultimate in quality, but it also keeps costs manageable. It makes it a very affordable arrow uh, in, yeah. in certain uh, models. Yeah, and I, I think that the more that people understand what AccuCarbon is and, and why it makes it better... Um, you know, the, the better we'll do with it. They, you know, we've just, I think in part because it, you can't see it, you know, in the finished product, it's just been difficult for people to understand that, you know, our, our black carbon tube is any different than another competitor's black carbon tube. And, and the reality is they are, but you know, you have to explain that why, and hopefully this video helps do that. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if it does or not because it's more of a tour, but I think that you could be, you could be looking at doing some specific stuff down the road to explain these things yeah, a little better. It, it, it'll, you know, over time, right? I think yeah. part of our marketing effort, we're starting to just speak to AccuCarbon more um, and just being consistent with that and being repetitive with that messaging. Um, it's not, this isn't marketing hype, you know, at all. This is a very legitimate, real thing. Yeah. And, and to bring AccuCarbon into the picture of target archery, because that's what our podcast is about um, yeah. with occasional excursions to other topics, but uh, Avance is one of those products that benefits from that technology. So what's interesting is just how quickly people who are dialed into target archery, people like Rob Kaufold, picked up on the advantages that AccuCarbon gives to target archers. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I just got um, from Lancaster, I'm on their mailing list, and we just I just got forwarded to us the, the latest LAS Press issue. This was from December 24th. Right on their cover, they do a, part, or a product spotlight on the new Avance four millimeter carbon arrow shaft. So, um, you know, for those of you, I, I mean, if you're not on the list, get on the list um, and, and get that. It's a, it's a good read um, to just give you a little preview of what that arrow is. But some of the things, some of the points that uh, Rob made in that newsletter uh, are right along the lines of what we've been talking about, I think, you know, with the, in terms of the Avance bringing to the target archery market, an arrow that's, that's light, but yep. also performs well in the wind, highly tunable for different configurations, lots yep. of point weight uh, configurations available for it, things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the Avance and I, and Avance sports. So what you've got there is two different quality levels of arrows. So the Avance is a 3000 straightness and the Avance sport is a, is a 6,000 straightness. Keep in mind, both of them are made on AccuCarbon uh, machines. So every single Avance, even the Avance sport has perfect spine around the shaft. It has a seamless construction. It has perfect weight consistency. So, you know, arrow number one and arrow number 15,000 are going to weigh the same. Yeah, and, that's, and that's so, really important, but also the spine the same. That's I mean, the other thing. About, well, think about what everybody charges for a match grade arrow, right? You're paying extra for match grade. Match grade is only a straightness sort. And so other companies sell like a one, three, five straightness. They don't, you're not paying, you pay extra for a one, but you, you go buy five dozen and those five dozen don't all match in weight. They might all you know, look different and, and yeah. they're all the same. The Avance, the standard Avance, the 3000th version of Avance is a better arrow all around. If you consider spine consistency, weight consistency, you know, straightness, everything. If you take all of that, it's a better arrow at that price than any other all carbon arrow on the market. Right. And I, and I think that that is the, that's an interesting point right there for that price point. It, there's nothing that comes close to touching its specifications. If, if every other arrow company, I'll say this, if every other arrow company could, could make their arrows the exact spine and exact weight from dozen to dozen to dozen, what would they charge for that? It would, it would be a premium, but you get that for free in every, you know, in every uh, AccuCarbon arrow shaft that we make. So I don't want to come across too promotional here. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to let people realize that there's a huge value in AccuCarbon um, that you're getting that translates to quality. It translates to accuracy. It translates to consistency, tunability that people need to know more about. And that's really what I'm trying to do is just make sure people realize that there's some real benefits there and it's not just something we're saying. Yeah, it's not a marketing and thing, that, you know. That Avance Arrow too is is lighter in weight than stuff we previously made um, in that price point. So that Carbon One and the Apollo that we used to that this replaces, it's significantly lighter than both of those. So it really, really elevates um, the level of this shaft to the to the shooter that's going to want to shoot it. I mean, yeah. it, in the past, I would say the Carbon One and the Apollo were maybe more of a medium. Um, a minor an intermediate level type of an arrow but in in reality although the price of the avance is 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 similar to where the carbon one was it really is a high-end carbon arrow i mean it's there's no reason it couldn't go head to head with you know the like the victory bat type arrows of the world you know, um, it, it reminds me that uh, you guys need to resurrect the 1960s ad campaign that Jim Easton put out, which was uh, the only difference is there is no difference. And yeah. that was referring to the old double uh, X75s, you know, from back in the day uh, when, when you know, Easton made 24 SRTX arrows and double X75 arrows. And that was it, right? That was, that was, that was archery. That was arrows. That was what you could buy. And, and they made their bones on the idea that if you bought one today and you bought another one in six months, you'd have them group right on top of each other. And that's something that these do. When we tell our story, right, our company story, we always start about our founder, Doug, who in 1922 started making wood arrows. And you tell the story better than I do, but he, he made wood arrows and he was unhappy with the spine inconsistency of wood arrows. 
So fast forward a hundred years, right? I, I, I'm just now I'm just talking. You got, you know, modern day Greg unhappy with the spine inconsistency of traditionally wrapped carbon arrows, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you, yeah. You've got AccuCarbon, right? Now we've got the perfect, you know, I mean, everything that Easton did to make the perfect aluminum arrow in the 1900s, we're now doing to make the perfect carbon arrow in the, in the 2000s. I mean, it's pretty cool. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, that in the spirit of the aluminum arrow, all the same, that's something that really for the first time we've got with an AccuCarbon arrow. That's kind yeah. of interesting. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I, I really believe that that's a message that, uh, that you guys need to get out because honestly, people don't even understand that about aluminum. You know, just today, oh, yeah. I, was, I was reading a thread on, on a uh, archery forum and the guy was saying, well, okay, I want to get this aluminum arrow, but is it going to group the same as this? And he was referring to the same size uh, and model of aluminum arrow. You know, and he's like, okay, I'm going to buy some of these, some more of these. Are they going to group the same? And I, I wanted to yell at my monitor. Well, of course they are. <laughs> it's a, it's a freaking aluminum arrow. They're exactly the same. There's, they're as, as same as you can get up until now with the AccuCarbon. Yeah. That's, this is the first all carbon arrow. That's really exactly the same. If we didn't have wind on this planet, an aluminum arrow would be the best arrow to shoot. Yeah, still, especially, you know, when you consider the price. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got any kind of wind, you're going to want the performance of the Carbon Arrow outdoors. And, sure. uh, and, and you know, that's what it brings. Eh, there's yeah, other good stuff like, about it. Like the Pro Comp, so the Avance and the Avance Sport are a four millimeter shaft. So they're going to use the same um, pin adapter family. Um, again, just consult the chart to get the right number. And then um, we've taken the Carbon one point and we've renamed it just as the four millimeter ML standing for like a mid-level stainless steel point, just to make it easier to understand. But it's that same series of point that the carbon one took. And um, we have four different sizes that fit to fit that, um, the Avante, depending on the spine. Looking forward to uh, seeing you guys again uh, when we have a chance to get back together in the uh, same room for a podcast. And uh, I just want to thank you to take, for taking the time, Clint, to uh, join us on the podcast remotely today. And uh, happy new year, my friend. My pleasure, George. Thanks so much. And yeah, always glad to be part of it. So thank you.